Welcome to the Community Development Podcast. A podcast dedicated to community development practice and approaches, sharing our learning and connecting the workforce. My name is Russell. So 23 and from the I've just found out sunniest city in Scotland I have Sharon Sweeney so so where exactly are you Sharon? I have a beautiful view of the Siddle Hills at this moment in time with home working but I am based at the University of Dundee where I'm the student funding officer and I'm also one of the academic staff at the community education team. So we're obviously doing this via the internet uh, because it is being recorded during the lockdown for coronavirus in the UK. T- tell us a little bit more about yourself, Shelley, involved with trade unionism. We're going to be talking social prescribing um, in a bit more detail for this podcast, but the situation we're finding ourselves in now is going to shape that discussion because if we were talking about maybe social prescribing this time 12 months ago, clearly we wouldn't be talking about it in terms of a pandemic, in terms of people being kept at home, being isolated, the need to address and meet very basic needs of people. You will probably be seeing that in terms of some of the funding, the student funding and student finance work that you're involved in. But, but tell us a little bit more about your, yourself and your career. Well, I've had a, an unexpected career trajectory. I left school at 15 and wanted to be a secretary. I went to college and I went to night school and then I went to university. So I came to Dundee nearly 30 years ago. I wanted to be a historian. I graduated with a degree in contemporary European studies and human geography. And I then trained as a community worker I spent some time working in adult guidance and community development. And then for a twist in fate, I then started working at the university on a temporary basis, helping people out with applying for their student loans. 21 years later, here I am, I'm the student funding officer. I have a team of six. Uh, I manage over three million pounds a year and we support students with any financial query or difficulty that they have. Um, So on the face of it, that might sound like it's quite an administrative process. However, I brought community development with me to the university. Community development runs in my blood and my team and our ethos is all based within the values of community development. We work with people where they're at, when they want to engage with us. We work with them. We don't do things for them. And over the years, it's quite fantastic to see non-community educators across the piece start to understand what community development is and how it works within a higher education context. So that's quite fabulous to reflect upon and see that development in part with me um, being quite pedantic and refusing to let community development go. (laughs) I'm probably in in pedant's corner with you on that one. (laughs) You're also involved in sort of community forms of education as well, I understand. Yes, I am. So I um, 
have been a member of the community education team at the university for this is my sixth year where I'm involved in professional tutoring, teaching, marking, professional placements, everything that goes on in the academic scenario. So where does the social prescribing bit fit into all of that? That's a very good question. <laughs> is I had been wanting to do my master's in community education for quite a long number of years. And when I knew I was ready to give it a good go, I was thinking about of all the things that I'm involved in, what could be my subject. And reflecting on my personal experience as a disabled person, I was aware that my health journey was very much based in the medical model and I was approaching it from the social model and kind of trying to work out where I was in my own journey. So I decided to explore the values of community education, the values of community development, and where can they be seen on the social prescribing landscape in Dundee. So I put out a, a call for participants and I interviewed eight people across four organisations, um, quite a mix of organisations. It was very pleasing that when asked about each of the value of community education, they all said, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And the majority of participants were not experienced or accredited community educators. So whether they were paid staff or volunteers, everyone acknowledged the values of community education. And then when we started to drill down on that, asking them what their main value was in their practice, there was commonality across the board, but there were very rich discussions with each individual. So it became clear that the social model was the most successful model. And reading the literature around social prescribing, bearing in mind because of ethics with the NHS, it wasn't feasible for a research study of this size to engage with NHS staff. Though quite often the literature I was coming across came from a medical model. It was um, from GPs or from doctors or looking at the cost of social prescribing, as in the economic cost of social prescribing. I think the best and most simple description of social prescribing, and this came from the Scottish Council for Voluntary Organisations in 2019, and it says social prescribing moves away from the assumption that prescription of medicine is always the answer to health problems. And I thought that was really powerful for such a short sentence, as it were. So again, the, I came across a very good quote from uh, a GP where they were saying that reflecting on a consultation with a patient, that they quickly realised the medical approach for that patient wasn't working. And they realised they had to change their approach to the social model to understand that this is about this particular individual, it's about what they need, and they had to change their approach 
to make sure they got the best outcome for the patient. And I thought, again, that was very powerful, that it, it perhaps was an unconscious shift between the medical model to the social model. But for me, that that shouts to me community development and practice, because it wasn't about their medical model. It wasn't about their medical expertise. It was that understanding that the important person in that relationship at that particular period of time was the patient. It was the individual. Yeah, and I think that, that definition from SCBO, I think, is extremely helpful, not just for, for this podcast, um, you know, more broadly as well, clearly, because it emphasises it's a shift away from clinical, medical, you know, drug-type forms of, of prescription and treatment. But it's not a rejection of that or a replacement for that, because I think I have encountered very limited, but, but nonetheless perhaps vocal, views around forms of social prescribing that uh, see it as a, as a, as a cost-cutting thing. And I think that clearly the, the backdrop of austerity and, and financial pressures that that brings on, on public services, mm-hmm. certainly the, the National Health Service, uh, albeit that that's devolved to Scotland as it is to Wales and, and Northern Ireland and England. So there's, there's, there's some differences on, on, on the ground in terms of policy and delivery, but I suppose it's still a national health service in that regard. Mm-hmm. Probably doesn't help because there's a certain pressure, I suppose, that necessitates finding alternative forms to to cut costs. But actually, even if we weren't doing this against a, a backdrop of austerity and hollowing out the finances, public public finances, if there's the potential to empower patients and to give them more voice and for them to articulate things that matter for them, then that's a right or is it the right thing or a right thing to do? I'm not an economist. However, I think with austerity, it could be easy for people to think the the only answer is social prescribing because it will then reduce the costs on spending on pharmaceutical medicine. However, it's not a balance because under austerity, what you don't have on the other side is third sector organisations being sufficiently funded. Another piece of research could be around the pressure on the third sector because of social prescribing. I won't name any groups, but you know, for example, a, a group that would work with lone parents. And if you're working with a socially isolated lone parent who has anxiety, who has you know limited income, no friends, it would be an appropriate referral to that organisation that supports lone parents. However, what support then is the government giving such third sector organisations to effectively cope with the increased demand coming from social prescribing? So I think there's quite a bit of work to be done there. Yeah, I suppose there's a danger becomes that big society concept on the on the slide. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's something to keep an eye on. It's not meant as negative, it's meant as realistic. Mm. And I would advocate that GPs shouldn't feel that they need to penny pinch on prescriptions. But also now is the time where investment has to come into the third sector. If we look at community development and look at the, because of austerity, what local authorities are able or choose to provide within communities is becoming narrower and narrower because of the economic pressure. 
So it's understandable people will look to the third sector. And as a trustee of a third sector organisation, funding is limited equally. So we're all under the same austerity pressure where everyone in this big society is expected to do more with less. And I wouldn't like to see a really good model of social prescribing become diluted purely because of austerity. Well, I've been following the social prescribing sort of hashtag on Twitter as a way of just helping to sort of prepare myself for this and to really kind of find myself, to immerse myself in the discussions and the debates that are taking place, albeit online and on, on Twitter, which is not the sum of that, I'm sure. To what extent are the, the networks and the fora related to social prescribing alert to that? need to push back against the state a little bit. We talk a lot about community development about working for and also against the state. So taking that money, mm-hmm. whether that's through employment, through public funding, etc. But actually one or indeed some of the things that you are helping communities organise against are certain state apparatus, um, state policies and, and so on. Mm-hmm. I think there would be the same challenge when I'm not a social prescriber so it wouldn't be fair for me to um, suggest what professional social prescribers uh, think and feel in their workplace. However, I do think they would, or I'd like to think they face the same challenges. So whether they're employed by the local authority or whether they're employed by the NHS, there's the almost incongruence between working with individuals or working with groups of people and seeing that grassroots development you you see empowerment happen uh, in people you see their lights and their eyes start to come back on all this rich wonderful community development work however that richness that power that beauty is happening in the context of working in a large organisation where you have the austerity from top down, you have the standard bureaucracy in a large organisation, you know, are you limited as a social prescriber as to actually what you can do? You know, where where are your boundaries? Where are your limits? Is there any financial implications in your boundaries and your limits? So in what way can you challenge the state as a social prescriber, I can't see. But again, perhaps we could look into that. Perhaps we could try and generate some feedback as to where community development sits in, in the, the daily work of social prescribers. That would be interesting. Who's driving it in Scotland then? Is it is it from government, from you know senior NHS policy? Or is it a bit more grassroots from the GPs themselves and the practice managers? Who's who's driving it? Many years ago, there was a GP in Dundee who I view as being the start of social prescribing in general practice. And he was very keen to use the medical model along with the social model. What else was it his patients could engage in to help them in their life journey, their health journey. But in 2017, the Scottish Government developed the Community Link Worker Programme. So in every health board, there will be social prescribers. So as you kind of come down to more grassroots, I think it varies from area to area. 
because some social prescribers will be employed by the local authority, some will be employed by the NHS, and sometimes that comes down to the choice of the individual social prescriber when they're signing their contract. So the, the landscape in Scotland could be different. However, I think the, the general theme will be the same because it is a development, not sanctioned, because we don't live in that kind of state yet, but it's one that's encouraged by the government. If they've set up this programme, then I think there's definitely buy-in from the top. I'm always interested when there's talk of sort of individual GPs. They always seem to be these radical, out-of-left-field individuals challenging the status quo, perhaps making themselves a bit of a nuisance. Um, mm. it, it chimes with the... The, you know, the pockets of resistance that uh, Sean Ed Pierce spoke about in, uh, in, a, in a previous episode when we were talking about how aspects of the state co-opt and colonise community development. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking of John Marks in Liverpool and the Wirral um, back in the 80s, I think, and, and, and the prescription of heroin to mm-hmm. people addicted to that substance. Like in the 70s, you know, Julian Tudorhart, who was uh, a communist, but was uh, pioneering a social form of primary care in his GP practice mm-hmm. in Corrug in the, the Avon Valley in South Wales. A great phrase from, from some of his work where he talks about how he would start a conversation sitting opposite people, but his aim was always to end up sitting alongside his patients. Mm-hmm. I think that really yeah. conjures a, a fantastic kind of image for a much equitable uh, relationship within a health setting. I also think if you reflect on any time you've been to your own GP, or something to consider in the future. The way in which they've laid out the room, do they have the desk against the wall? Do they have the the chair, consulting chair, beside their desk where it's more open? Or is it very much they sit behind a desk and the individual sits on the other side? So it's very much a kind of delegation of where the power lies. Or maybe that's just me, but I do find these things quite interesting that the way in which a GP could sit out the room can actually make a big difference and how you feel, how welcomed you feel, how equitable it is. Because there's still so many people who, you know, a strong deference to doctors. And you see it in hospital, how are you today? Oh, fine, doctor. Well, no, you're not fine because you're in hospital for a reason. (laughs) I mean, I remember when my mum got her cancer diagnosis and she went, thank you, doctor. I'm thinking, why are you thanking him? He's just told you you've got terminal cancer. And uh, and again, it's just that, it may be a generational thing, but that deference to the doctor, because the doctor knows that. Deference, uh, I've seen that a lot. And I'm a big believer as well in you. It, it seems a very basic thing, almost a, a, a pedantic <laughs> mm-hmm. pedantry, um, certainly how mm-hmm. you configure spaces in terms of furniture, chairs, yeah. It's a massive uh, influence on the dynamic of a relationship or the dynamic of a conversation even. Yeah. yeah. Playing devil's advocate a little bit, like I said, I've been following the, the hashtag a little bit and I've seen a lot of talk mm-hmm. as to things like, and again, I, I can take or leave job titles. These things tend to follow certain sort of fads in terms of words. But I'm seeing things around sort of liaison, link, connector type titles. Mm-hmm. I've read a couple of blogs as well. I feel I haven't illustrated what it looks like. Yes, it articulates some of the values that you've done now, which are absolutely critical, don't get me wrong. But I still think there's a problem in people being able to conceptualise and, and see it in their in their own mind's eyes to, to what it 
And so a lot of the reference has been around, particularly at this point in time, as you said at the outset, it's inevitable that the pandemic is going to shape this, this conversation. Yeah. It's talking about people kind of checking in on people who are living alone. It's talking about making sure that people are still accessing, you know, medicines and prescription medicines that mm-hmm. they require and things like that. And that's that's kind of fine. But I've also seen the next podcast um, that I've recorded with the, the folks up in Bangor, with you know, Michael over in Winnipeg in, in Canada. People are meeting essential needs at the moment of people, whether that's utility bills, food. Uh, you know, Bangor, they were talking about just free delivery of plants just to brighten up the garden that people are spending more mm-hmm. time. But there's an awful lot of organic grassroots neighbourhood responding and organising to meet those needs, mm-hmm. which I think is fantastic. And from a community development point of view, you, you really want mm-hmm. to champion it. My worry would be under the banner of social prescription, social prescribing, these connectors, link officers, etc., potentially displace some of that. They begin to come back to the podcast I did with Seaned that talk around colonising, co-opting forms of activities in response and organising that communities potentially can do for themselves. That's not to say that all communities can all organise as effectively as others, and clearly morality would be an mm-hmm. issue and disadvantage and, and, and other forms of cultural capital might be lacking in some areas. However, where it's happening, my worry is, and maybe it's just now, here and now, but I wonder whether that might be a bit more of a, an issue more broadly in, in inverted commas, normal time. It has a displacing effect. What would you say to that? I'm just thinking about that. I'm not sure. These are the reasons for which I'm unsure. First of all, I mean, the amount of good-spirited community work that's happening just now under these testing times is amazing. I would quite like to clap for grassroots community people one Thursday night because they are in part helping keep the country going and helping keep people alive, people connected in their community. The extent to which that will continue when lockdown is over or is more relaxed will be interesting to see. I, I hope that a lot of it will continue. You know, perhaps just the humanity of looking out for your neighbour. Um, but if, if this can work so, so hard into getting rid of this individualism, there's no such thing as society, whatever ideology um, is filtering through, that would be a massive win for me. I think, you know, it's not about me. It's not about the I. It's about I'm a human being and I'm in a community, even if it's just your next door neighbour. As far as I'm aware, social prescribing does not include the development of groups. So that I see huge role for community development there. And that might also tie in with harnessing the sporadic community uh, work that's going on by individuals looking after their neighbours or the general community, whatever. I think social prescribing as it is at the moment will continue. I don't think it'll be eroded. I think perhaps, if anything, there'll be a, a greater demand for it because I think what I'm taking it back to, Russell, is was a model that I was playing with um, doing my research where... I saw it very much as the VP makes a referral to the link worker who then contacts the, the patient. And then I thought, this doesn't work for me because I'm not based in a medical model. The model that worked for me was kind of based on John Dewey's model of reflection and experiential learning, where the power starts with the patient. The patient chooses 
to go to the GP or needs to go to the GP, then through the information they choose to share with the GP, the GP then picks up that social prescribing as a possibility, then reflects that back to the patient. The patient then has a power to say yes or no. They say yes, then that's where the connection to the link worker becomes. But again, the power also, if you think about the spiral, the experiential learning spiral, it always drops back down to the patient and they have the power to move that up the spiral. So it's their power that's moving it. It's not the power of a GP or a professional social prescriber. But at this stage, I'm not confident that that approach is recognised formally because I generally think we're still stuck in the medical model. I think, frankly, you've articulated much more clearly probably my reservations then um, with it to date. But I guess if it's still fairly early, early days, um, then there's clearly going to still be some some work to do. To, to what extent is the practice in Scotland, maybe elsewhere in the UK, drawing on maybe uh, countries abroad? Are there are there sort of pioneers in terms of, of countries we often hear about? You know, in terms of mm-hmm. you know, Scandinavian model or you know the, the Netherlands, these these progressive societies that tend to be held up certainly around around aspects of health. Or is it maybe still relatively? You know, new in, I think in, it in is still countries. quite new. I mean, within the scope of my research, I didn't have space for doing any international comparisons. Finding the literature around social prescribing in the UK um, was quite difficult, um, to be perfectly honest. But I think that would be quite an interesting uh, piece of research as well. Um, what are the international comparators? if there are any so um maybe you you should invite a social prescriber a practicing social prescriber um to do a podcast with you and they might have a bit more to say about that the dms on twitter are open contact by the website so that would be great certainly um don't ever view any Mm -hmm. particular episode on a particular topic as the um you know the complete uh, chapter on, on on a particular topic just to hop back to a point you made a bit earlier, I certainly think there is a sense that people are beginning to understand what this phrase, a well-being economy, mm-hmm. focuses on because they're beginning to focus on yeah. aspects of well-being because, you know, the, 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 the commute, the daily grind and the white noise of, of work and, and all that sort of um, activity is is being put on the back burner. So we're beginning to focus and having that that space almost, that emotional, mental space to, to focus on those arguably you know, more important, more fundamental needs related to, to well-being. Notwithstanding the fact, of course, some people will be um, socially as well as physically isolated even more so than they perhaps usually are given, given lockdown mm-hmm. and aspects of that. Are there any kind of texts or reading? You, you sent some links up on the, the websites already. Um, but if anyone's interested in knowing a little bit more, where would you suggest people um, head to? I think it depends the perspective that you would be coming to social prescribing. Um, but one of the, the people that I find particularly inspiring uh, in general, but I think it's quite important while we're talking about social prescribing, is Adichie and their reflections on a single story. And I think that's really important when you think of the scenario of a patient at the doctor. So I've just been saying about they have the power to share what they choose to share with the GP at that moment in time. However, 
whatever they share, the, the presenting issue, is not their only story. And I think that's the beauty of the social prescribing. It, it enables the individual space to share their, you know, a, a fuller story rather than the single story of the presenting issue. Yeah, stories are still one of those powerful, almost primal, I suppose, media for us. Absolutely. As I mean, I'm, I, um, I'm a Glaswegian. We always talk in stories. You know, you get a story before you get the point. Um, but for me, stories are about power. Stories are about an opportunity. If you tell your story, no matter how big or small it is, you're using the power of your own voice. You're using the power to decide what it is that you want to share. And sometimes I think that power is overlooked. I think that's a perfect note on which to this up. I'm really grateful for your time, Sharon. Um, quick plug for episode 22, which was with Mark uh, McFeeters and Lauren McAreevy at Ulster University. Um, Mark is a lecturer on the Community Youthwork degree. Lauren's a third year undergrad. I hope that dissertation is going well, Lauren, if you're listening. Um, I think she was about to start it when we when we spoke. Hopefully the disruption of the, the pandemic hasn't affected that too much, but it was a great insight into um, some of the theory, fairly basic primer to, to what is community youth work. But what was great was really Lauren immersed in that study, going out on the placements, really trying to apply some of that theory in a practical setting. I really enjoyed that discussion. So yeah, once again, Sharon, best of luck. And um, it'd be great maybe to, to keep in touch and to catch up in a few months' time. Okay, thank you, Russell. Good to speak.